Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. This series features real conversations with real experts, real parents, and real educators, so families can get the real behind-the-scenes story on what's happening in education. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack that tell you everything that's happening at their school. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm your host, Luanda Tony, Director of Communications at National PTA. And I'm here today with my co-host, Helen Westmoreland, who is our Director of Family Engagement. This week's episode will help families understand the truth about school discipline in America. As parents, we know that almost every child experiments with breaking the rules. Pushing boundaries is how kids learn and grow. So when we talk about school discipline, it's important to know when and how kids learn to exercise judgment, responsibility, and other life skills. Lawanda, did you know that research shows that kids' brains are not fully developed until they're about 26 years old? Wow, 26. I wish somebody would have told me that. I would have made some different choices before I turned 26. And it explains why we see teens and even college students doing things as parents. We wonder, what in the world were you thinking? It's easy to get frustrated when kids make mistakes, but making mistakes is a part of growing up. We're here today to talk about how schools handle kids' mistakes. Discipline is a hot topic for many parents, whether you're on the receiving end of a phone call home or trying to make sense of new terms and approaches in your school. Some parents want schools to have very strict discipline approaches to help teach their kids life lessons and consequences. Other families want schools to avoid harsh punishments because they worry about the effects on their child or that they might be being stereotyped. Are they wrong? How do we ensure that our schools are using effective discipline policies that are also fair to every student? Before we dive in too much further, I'd like to introduce our audience to an extremely special guest who is all too familiar with our country's school discipline issues, former United States Secretary of Education, John B. King Jr. John, I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm going to have to go through your resume and it's very impressive. John B. King Jr.'s life story is an extraordinary testament to the transformative power of education. John served as the 10th United States Secretary of Education under former President Barack Obama's leadership. Prior to serving on the national level, King was the first African-American and Puerto Rican to serve as the New York State Education Commissioner. He is also a former high school teacher and middle school principal. Today, John is the president and CEO of Education Trust, also known as EdTrust a national nonprofit that seeks to identify and close opportunity and achievement gaps. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. You have a very inspirational life story. Could you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to begin a career in education? For me, really, schools saved my life. Both my parents were teachers and spent their whole lives working for New York City Public Schools. But they both passed away when I was a kid, and my mom passed October 4th grade. And I lived with my father, who was very sick with undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So home was this place where I didn't know what my father would be like from one night to the next. It was often lonely, scary, unstable. And school took on this incredibly important role in my life. It was the place that was consistent, that was structured, that was nurturing. 
I had this phenomenal teacher in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, Mr. Osterweil. I remember the stuff that we did in his class like it was yesterday. Uh-uh. Everything from reading the New York Times every day to doing productions of Shakespeare. We did a Midsummer Night's Dream. We did a production of Alice in Wonderland. He took us to the museum and the ballet, and he just made school this place where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid outside of school. And then my dad passed when I was 12, and I moved around different family members, different schools. It was always teachers who gave me a sense of hope and possibility and purpose. And so I really became a teacher, and really my whole career in education has been about trying to do for other kids what teachers did for me. I'm very clear that school can make such a huge, profound difference in the lives of kids. I also am very conscious of the importance of second chances because like many kids who experience trauma as a child, I was a very angry teenager and I got in trouble a lot as a teenager. And I always tell folks I'm the first U.S. Secretary of Education to have been kicked out of high school. And I hope I'm not the last because really part of my story is that folks who could have looked at me and said, here's a African-American, Puerto Rican, young man, family in crisis. What chance does he have? and given up on me, which happens to so many young people in our society today. They didn't give up on me. They saw more potential in me than I saw in myself and were willing to invest in me and give me a second chance. And part of why I've been able to do the things I have in my career is because people were willing to see me as more than the sum of my mistakes. That is an important role that we can all play in the lives of young people. Realize that young people are going to make mistakes and our task is to help them learn from those mistakes, grow from those mistakes, and really develop into successful contributing adults. Can we talk a little bit about some of your experiences with teachers who were able to probe a little bit and go deeper with you? What did they do? A lot of it was about making school really good. I think about Mr. Osterweil, that teacher I was describing. He was the kind of teacher who, when you finished a book, he was there with the next. When you finished a math problem, he was there with another. It was a little more challenging. That kind of sense of the joy and challenge of learning was so palpable in his classroom. That made a huge difference. It also made a huge difference that school was fun. I remember when my father was really sick, I was in seventh grade at Mark Twain Junior High School, and I had a teacher, Miss D, for seventh grade social studies, and we had a project where we did an Aztec newscast. Even though a lot of times I would sit in class and I'd worry about my father and I'd worry what was happening at home, in Miss D's class, when we did the Aztec newscast, my whole goal was to be the best Aztec sportscaster there had ever been, <laughs> right? And that made a huge difference, right? Yeah. That I was able in her class to really embrace the joy of learning. So that was hugely important. And then, of course, relationship building. And this, again, is part of how I think we need to shift how we approach discipline in many schools. That we've really got to see students' misbehavior or students being off track as an opportunity to build relationships to deepen relationships to get them back on track. And I was very fortunate, especially my school counselor. After I'd been kicked out of high school, I went to a high school in New Jersey, and the school counselor really convinced me that my life wasn't over because of the bad decisions I'd made. She took the time to build that relationship. And unfortunately, we know that We have many schools around the country that don't have the counselors they should. There are 1.7 million kids who go to a school where there's a sworn law enforcement officer and no school counselor. Oh, wow. So we know we need more counselors, but we also know that counselors have an incredible student load, 500 students per counselor, 600 students per counselor. 
in that context, it's really hard to build those relationships. Yeah. So I was very fortunate that I had a counselor who was really able to give me the time and build the relationship to help me come to believe in myself. Could you talk about sort of what does school discipline look like in America currently and how would you describe it to the average parent? Well, it's first important to say there are lots of schools around the country that are doing a great job creating safe and supportive climates for kids. That said, we have some real challenges. We know from the civil rights data collection, which is something that the U.S. Education Department puts out regularly, we know that African-American students, for example, are more than three times as likely to be suspended from school as white students. We know that students with disabilities are disproportionately subject to suspension and expulsion from school. We know that this starts early. For example, African-American kids are about 19% of the kids in pre-K and about 48% of the students who are suspended more than once from pre-K. Oh my gosh, at five years old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very yeah. sad. Yeah, so when you think about, you know, when people talk about the school to prison pipeline, that's starting in pre-K. So we have these challenges around disparities, racial disparities, disparities based on students with disabilities. But fortunately, we have places that are trying to rethink discipline. And this was a priority for us in the Obama administration. We put out guidance to try to make sure that states and districts paid attention to protecting the civil rights of students and really tried to focus on creating safe and supportive environments while reducing the use of exclusionary discipline, the use of suspensions and expulsions. And there are lots of places that have made progress, places that have moved towards using restorative justice approaches, places that have increased their number of school counselors, access to mental health services, improved professional development for teachers. We really need to tackle these discipline disparities. The other sad truth is we still have 19 states that allow corporal punishment. So right now, as we are talking in a school in America, a student is being hit with a wooden object as a tool of discipline. And again, disproportionately, that type of discipline is used with African-American students, particularly African-American boys, with students with disabilities. In my view, it's something that should be banned completely. We need governors and legislatures to step up and ban corporal punishment entirely. But it's also reflective of a view about punitive discipline that is deeply problematic that we've got to tackle as a country. I am an African-American woman. I have a six-year-old, and I can't imagine having that type of discipline happen to my first grader. As a parent, what can I do? How can I make sure that that's not happening? I would think in terms of three things. One is data matter. Data are important. And so we want to know, as parents in our school district, in our school, what are the discipline rates? What are the disparities? To what extent are students being suspended? Is corporal punishment used in my school? And then how are those types of discipline used based on different demographic groups? Mm -hmm. We need disaggregated data to tell us whether or not there are disparities for students of color, for students with disabilities. So that's the first question is, it's important to know what's happening inside of schools. Second is, what kinds of practices are the schools encouraging? What kinds of professional development is being provided to teachers? What kinds of norms are established in the school around how we deal with misbehavior? Misbehavior is a part of life. Kids are going to test. They're going to break rules. And the question is, how do we as adults respond? Too often we respond with exclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And we would never do that around math. 
You know, you would never say to a student, no, you did badly on this math quiz. No more math for you. Right. Right. But we do say that around the socio-emotional learning that students need, the socio-emotional environment. We say, oh, well, you're struggling with this environment, this peer environment. No more environment for you. We're going to send you out. Instead, we should take the same approach we would around the math quiz and say, okay, you're struggling. Now, what supports can we provide so that you are able to be successful? So how do we help students? So it's important to know how the school is approaching that. It's important to know whether the school is doing work around issues of implicit bias. It's important to know whether the school is doing work to make sure that there's a healthy environment for LGBTQ students, whether the curriculum reflects both, uh, as I like to say, windows and mirrors, opportunities for students to see themselves. That's an important way that schools can create a safe and supportive space. And then the third piece is really getting to know your child's teacher and understanding what your child's experience is like in his or her classroom. What are they struggling with? What are their peers struggling with? You know, one of the powerful ways that PTAs are such a tremendous resource in schools is it's a way to build stronger relationships between educators and parents. I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the data that you shared Because I think as parents, we don't often see that behind the scenes of it. And so when we hear, you know, students of color are being suspended three times more frequently, I think a lot of parents might think like, well, those are just bad kids. They're just misbehaving or their parents didn't raise them right. Has that been true in your experience and sort of view of American schools? What's really going on there for that parent that might be thinking this is actually a problem with kids and parents, not the system? There are a few things. One is there's no question that there are places where discipline is handled differently based on race or students' disability status. That is a civil rights violation that needs to be addressed. And so there is evidence that in some schools, if a student of color commits a certain rule infraction, the consequence is different than the consequence for a white student. And that has to be addressed. We also have to acknowledge that oftentimes students who are struggling with behavior are struggling with other things. Many kids have experienced trauma, the loss of a parent, violence in the community, domestic violence at home, folks in the family struggling with addiction, hunger, homelessness, Mm -hmm. all of that can manifest in misbehavior in the classroom. And so we've really got to think, not just in terms of a child breaking a rule, but what's going on with that child, what might be causing their behavior, and then get to those root causes. And I find that often when folks step back and better understand the experiences that kids have had, particularly outside of school, they have better sense of the need to rethink discipline. And then there's a third piece, which is really about relationships between teachers and students. And I do think it's important to name that there are strategies that can help build stronger relationships, just as there are strategies that undermine those relationships. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund has written extensively about ways to tackle implicit bias in schools. A couple interesting examples that they will talk about. One is this idea of wise feedback as a way to build relationships in an academic context. There's this great study that was done that showed some students got on their paper a comment from the teacher. I'm giving you this feedback because you should have comments on your work. The other students, they were given a different kind of feedback on their paper where the teacher wrote, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations for you and I know you can achieve them. The students who got that second message about high expectations and belief were dramatically more likely 
to submit revisions of their paper and did better academically as a result, right? So that wise feedback, that's a small step, but it's a way that teachers are able to signal to students that relationships matter. There's another study that NWCPLDF will talk about where the teachers were given a series of articles to read about how students experience school and Uh some of the anxieties that students feel, particularly about discipline and fearing that they're going to be singled out or they're going to be treated differently. Then they were given a series of articles to read about ways that teachers leveraged misbehavior as an opportunity to build relationships. Then they were asked to write about how they in their classrooms would use misbehavior to build relationships. The result of this small training intervention was a significant reduction in suspensions Mm -hmm. among the teachers who participated. And that's really about just intentionality about relationship building between teachers and students. So I think what I hear you saying is that the suspension data is a clue of what might be going on in the school sometimes more than an indicator of a student's actual behavior. I mean, it's both. It can be about the school climate and it can be about what's going on in that kid's life. And we need to address both. And I think one of the challenges in education now is that people have these debates. School have all the answers or all the answers outside of school. Mm -hmm. The reality is kids are in both places. So, yeah, we've got to make school as wonderful and supportive and safe and nurturing an environment as possible. And we've got to be systematic about addressing some of the obstacles students face outside of school and making sure that we address gaps in access to health care and access to mental health services and access to affordable housing. We shouldn't feel like we have to choose. We actually Mm -hmm. have to do both things if we want to ensure that our kids are healthy and well-supported. I wanted to talk about alternative approaches to discipline. Can you give some examples of some alternative approaches that you have seen or witnessed that have been kind of transformative for schools? One of the things that a number of schools around the country are trying to implement is restorative justice. And that can look different ways in different schools. Partly it's about creating a sense of community and clarity for everyone in the community about what the expectations are for how we will treat each other. Many schools use community circles to try to instill that sense of community norms. Part of restorative justice programs is often helping the student who has committed a harm interact with the student who was harmed and really come to understand the nature of the harm and then take some action to repair that harm and then repair the relationship with the community, often through that same community circle mechanism. So it's really about how do you take, again, the the misbehavior that may be an inevitable part of schools, how do you then turn that into a learning opportunity for students and for the community? Another thing we see is that oftentimes, as we've talked about, when a student is misbehaving, it's a symptom of something that's going on Mm -hmm. with the student in their life outside of school. And so having access to counselors, having school-based mental health services, which often can be reimbursed in a high-need school through Medicaid, but having those school-based services can make a huge difference for kids and families. Because sometimes families may be reluctant to Mm -hmm. use mental health services. There's certainly stigma attached to mental health services. So they may not go to an outside provider. But if that provider is at school and can work with the student and the family, that may be a way to get at the underlying issues and help students develop healthier coping strategies so that they're not acting out in ways that disrupt learning or harm their peers. As a parent, how do you bring those approaches to the school if you want to share with them some alternative approaches to discipline? A few thoughts. One is showing up at school board meetings and budget hearings Mm -hmm. in particular, right, and asking how many school counselors do we have? How are they assigned in our district? 
and which schools have more counselors and fewer counselors, which schools have lower or higher counselor-to-student ratios. Being active in that way, and certainly the PTA can be a vehicle mm-hmm. for that. I live in Montgomery County in, in Maryland. My kids go to Montgomery County Public Schools. My wife is the NAACP rep for our school's PTA. And those are the kinds of questions she's asking, right? She's trying to understand how is the district allocating its resources in ways that can advance equity. So that's important. Mm-hmm. I would say it's important to talk with the principal of the school or the leadership team of the school to understand what approaches they're taking, to share resources with them. For example, there's a publication that the Schott Foundation, the AFT, and the NEA co-publish called Restorative Justice, Fostering Healthy Relationships, and Promoting Positive Discipline in Schools. Mm-hmm. That's a great resource to share with folks. And to start a conversation about how are we dealing with misbehavior in the school? What are some of our strategies? To what extent are we relying on suspensions versus something like a restorative justice approach? Parents, both through their relationship with the principal and leadership team and through the PTA at the school, can be a voice for putting forward more progressive approaches to discipline. John, I want to go back a little bit to you describe some alternative approaches. And I think one of the sticky points when you're trying to shift a school approach or climate is that sometimes people want research. And I know you also have a doctorate in education. How would you describe the research about, you know, so many of us as parents were used to that more, I guess, punitive approach to discipline where kids are suspended, they're expelled, maybe there's corporal punishment. What do you see as sort of the outcomes and how they're different between these sort of old school, for lack of a better term, right, Mm -hmm. ways of discipline and maybe the future of discipline that may just seem kind of foreign and strange to a parent that didn't experience it? We have a lot of evidence about the long-term consequences of exclusionary discipline, that students who are suspended from school are more likely to be retained in grade. They are more likely to drop out of high school. They are more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system. They are less likely to pursue post-secondary opportunities. So we know that there's strong correlation between exclusionary discipline and bad outcomes. The research on alternatives is still emergent, and we have to acknowledge that we are still building an evidence base around these different interventions. There's very strong research around some of the relationship-building strategies that I talked about. In randomized controlled trials, you know, the same kind of research approach that you would take in medicine, we have really good evidence on the kinds of wise feedback and social belonging interventions that I described. The evidence base around restorative justice is still emerging. That is a relatively new intervention in schools, and so that evidence base needs to be built. What we do know is that in many districts that have shifted their approach to discipline, reduced their reliance on exclusionary discipline, they have seen better attendance and mm. improved graduation rates as a result of students missing less school. Yeah. Right? Even Makes the sense. best teacher can't be effective with a kid who's not in class. Yeah. We know that there's good emerging evidence that districts thoughtfully improving their discipline policies can make a big difference. Now, we also see some districts that have not done this in a thoughtful way. We have to acknowledge that because it's very hard on teachers when schools say, change discipline tomorrow, but they don't invest in professional development. They don't invest in counselors. They don't invest in mental health services. They don't build relationships with parents and families. In that context, teachers just feel overwhelmed by the change and under-supported. And so the key is We've really got to do this in a thoughtful, well-resourced way. 
You said most of the research that's out there is really positive about student-teacher relationships. And I would imagine some of that can be trained, but some of that may depend on your hiring practices and who you're hiring and from what talent pool. And is that something that you see also affects discipline in schools? Definitely. I think there's a couple opportunities. One is we've got to do a better job in teacher preparation, focusing on the skills of relationship building, helping teachers develop the strategies that they will need in the classroom to support students who are struggling with the socio-emotional environment. My own experience in teacher training, which was by and large great, but we really never talked about classroom management strategies mm. or school climate or safe and supportive environments. And it's all pedagogy. Were, yeah, yeah. And, and but it turns out you really need those things, yeah. right? First day <laughs> teaching 10th grade global studies, I really needed those, those skills, you know? And, and I can I, imagine. I was fortunate that I worked in summer camps and run summer uh, camps and so had some skills to draw on, but it wasn't necessary for my teacher preparation. So that's one is we really got to improve teacher preparation that way. We also have to be thoughtful about building diverse faculties in our schools. If you look across the country, majority of kids in the nation's public schools are kids of color, but only 18% of our teachers are teachers of color. Oh, wow. Only 2% of our teachers are African-American men. It's really important for kids to have amongst their teachers and principals, again, windows and mirrors. They should have relationships with adults who are different from them, but they also really need those relationships with adults who look like them. There's really strong research from a large data set in North Carolina showing that African-American students who had at least one African-American teacher in elementary school were more likely to graduate from high school and go on to college. And it's really powerful. It's really important for kids to see that diversity. And that doesn't happen by accident. That requires investment at the state level in the higher ed institutions that serve large numbers of students of color. That requires districts to be intentional about hiring policies, requires principals to be intentional about how they approach hiring. And it requires districts and principals to be intentional about creating environments that are positive for teachers of color so that they stay. Because we see nationally that retention can be a challenge for teachers of color. We've got to do more work to make sure that folks feel valued and heard within their school communities. I grew up in South Carolina in a small town, and both my parents were teachers. One was a high school teacher, and the other was a middle school teacher. My dad was a science teacher. College was never an option. It was mandatory. It wasn't something that I thought about like, oh, this is the alternative because of the teachers that I had in my life, not just the ones in my house, but the other ones that looked like me that I wanted to aspire to be like. So I totally get it. And then when I went to college and had conversations with other peers, they talked about this is my first experience with an African-American professor. And I was kind of blown away like, what? I grew up with this my whole life, but it makes a difference. And so I just want to echo what you said about diversity is so important and being able to see yourself in the people who educate you make a big difference. Absolutely. We've done a series of reports at EdTrust that folks can find on our website at edtrust.org on the experience of teachers of color. And one of the unfortunate things that happens in some schools is that folks really pay what I would call an invisible tax as educators of color. It's assumed for African-American male teachers that you're going to be the disciplinarian. Or it's assumed for a Latina teacher that she's Mm. going to do the translating for families. Those additional responsibilities are not compensated and recognized. And so we hear that again and again from teachers. So it's so important that the role of those teachers can be so powerful, but we've got to make sure that they feel supported and are willing to stay. That's been a real focus for us at EdTrust, both trying to improve the pipeline of new teachers, but also ensure that we retain our teachers of color. 
I think we experience the same at PTA, right? These sort of invisible burdens that so many people carry and retaining and growing leaders, parent leaders, especially when you're the only one or one of a couple is really challenging. You can feel alone. You've talked a lot about big picture policy and maybe even at the district level, how parents could intervene. Could you bring it down a little bit to us? I'm a parent. I'm getting calls home all the time about my kid <laughs> having trouble in school. What would you say to that parent who is really feeling like, I feel like my kid might be getting unfairly targeted or they're on their road to suspension? What would you say to that parent to help them navigate that very personal situation with their school and their teachers? It's really important to talk to your child and to try to understand not only what happened in a particular incident, but how they're feeling how they feel about their relationship with the teacher, how they feel about their relationship with their peers, how they're feeling about the work academically in that class. Sometimes misbehavior is an indicator that a student is really struggling in a class, or sometimes it's an indication that the student is excelling in the class and is bored. You really, I think, want to start with really understanding your child's experience, really talking with the teacher and trying to understand from their perspective what's happening in the classroom. You know, when I think back to having 30 students in a classroom, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of activity. You're making, in any given class period, thousands of decisions. Understanding from the perspective of the teacher what they think is going on, what they think the dynamic is, hugely important. Trying to strengthen that teacher-student relationship and trying to help your child understand where the teacher is coming from, I think can be hugely valuable. Sometimes there are real problems, there are real injustices, and it may require going beyond the classroom teacher to a counselor and administrator to try to resolve the issues. But I think, you know, too often in our society, we kind of pass over the step of really understanding yeah. what's going on. Well, it's uh, easy to get defensive. You're like, this is my baby. It's my baby. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, you feel like, well, I taught them they should do X or Y. And, you know, what does it mean about me and my parenting hey, that they are judged. doing yeah. X or Y? But we all have to remember misbehavior and social struggles are part of the human condition. Like mm. That's going to happen. You know, when I was a middle school principal, oftentimes I would talk with parents who would say, what happened to my child? My child's changed. And yes, <laughs> adolescence <laughs> happened, right? And so, my yes. sweet little baby isn't a baby. Yes, no. yes. Lauren and I aren't there yet. We're waiting. I don't want to say eagerly. Yeah. Not but eagerly. it happens, right? You know, there's a big change that happens, particularly between sort of like fourth and seventh grade. There's a lot that's changing in a child's life and how they interact with peers and adults. We all need to have grace with each other through that yeah. and, and also be willing to sort of work together, teachers and parents, to support kids as they navigate that experience. Is there a place for suspensions and expulsions in school discipline? Is it one of an array of strategies? Like if I was a parent sort of pushing back on this, or is it really it needs to be faded out and replaced with something entirely different? I think we have to make sure schools are safe. And there are times when a child is not safe either to themselves or to their peers, and that requires much more robust intervention. That may require an alternative setting. That may require intense mental health intervention. So yes, there are those situations, but they are very small percentage of the incidents. Many more times we could have dealt with the 
issue through an alternative strategy rather than exclusion. It's not to say that there's never a circumstance. For Again, for safety reasons, a student can't be in the classroom, but we need to be doing much, much more. And we need to convince ourselves that we've really done everything possible before we get there. And I think part of what we were responding to at the department during the Obama administration was the real clear evidence that schools were going to exclusionary discipline as a first response, not as a last response. We really have to do much more to invest in those other strategies so that we reduce that exclusionary discipline number down to only those situations where there's a real immediate threat to safety. In our research, we saw a lot of conversation about school-to-prison pipeline, and I wanted to learn more about that. I think our listeners hear that term, but they really don't know what it means. Can you help? One of the things that we see is that students who frequently are excluded from school are more likely to get into trouble. Think about communities where there's significant violence and gang activity, and now you've got kids who are home or on the street. They're more susceptible to get involved in crime, and then that leads ultimately to juvenile justice and adult prison. We also know that it's a problem in some schools of relying on police within the school to address student discipline issues. And we know that there are many cases where because there aren't school counselors, there aren't mental health services, there isn't good professional development for teachers on alternatives to exclusionary discipline, kids are arrested. And we know that disproportionately arrests in schools, again, affect students of color, particularly in some of our highest need schools, we see people relying on the police in schools rather than educators in schools to deal with student behavior issues. And once you're involved in the juvenile justice system, your likelihood of ending up in adult prison goes up dramatically, often because the juvenile justice system is not designed in a way that is restorative and focused on rehabilitation, but instead is focused on punishment. We know that many states Students who are involved in the juvenile justice system are sent far from home to juvenile justice detention centers where they're not provided with meaningful educational opportunities, all of which sets them up to be much more likely to be unable to adjust back home and much more likely to end up in adult prison. John King, I want to thank you for joining us today. This has been a real pleasure to chat. I feel like I've learned a lot. How about you, Luanda? Oh, yeah, definitely very (laughs) insightful. I think our listeners will come away with a lot of great tools to be able to have these conversations kind of in their schools and in their classrooms with their teachers. Yeah. And so with that, we want to give you a last opportunity of if there's one major takeaway you want parents and other folks listening to have today, what is that? I think ultimately it's that part of what we want to do in schools is create environments that are characterized by love. We should want for every child what we'd want for our own child. And we would never want someone to throw our own child away. We would never want someone to give up on our own child. And so we shouldn't give up on any kid. And we should approach school with a mindset that with the right set of support in school and outside of school, we can help every young person to be successful and to make of their lives what they will. You know, I'd also say that it's important that parents see whether it's through the PTA or through their relationships with principals and teachers, see themselves as real partners in building school climates that are safe and supportive for all kids. And we have to be willing as parents to stand up, again, not just for our own child, but for other people's children. 
We have to insist that our schools are safe places for kids of color, safe places for kids from families that are struggling economically. We have to make sure schools are safe and supportive places for LGBTQ young people, that they're safe and supportive places for kids regardless of religion. That is our shared responsibility to build healthy communities. Where can parents find resources from EdTrust? Where can they go? edtrust.org, which is our website. We actually have a regular education civil rights newsletter that we put out that folks can sign up for. I would also say that NAACP Legal Defense Fund is a great resource on these issues, as well as the Schott Foundation and the Learning Policy Institute. All of those organizations are doing really good work in this space. And before we leave, can you tell us your social media handles so people may be able to follow you on Twitter? Yes, at John B. King on Twitter and at EdTrust on Twitter as well. Well, thank you again to everyone listening in and joining us today. Please keep the conversation going by using hashtag Backpack Notes on social media, and we hope you tune in next time. Thanks again, John. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash Backpack Notes.